welcome to Guitar Radio Show. 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 Hey, everybody, what's going on? This is Philip Sace, and you are listening to Guitar Radio Show. Hello. You know who this is. You are listening to the Guitar Radio Show. Wow! The show dedicated to the guitar player, guitar maker, gear builder, and purveyors of such items that you may not know about, but should. folks welcome back to guitar radio show our next guest is not only a wildly accomplished guitarist songwriter and a technical yet tasty wizard 
But he also happens to have an MBA, if you could believe that. He has a three-disc compilation that encompasses his musical story from 1987 to 2010, coming out on September 30th worldwide. It's called Wake the Beast, the Impelitary Anthology. Please welcome to Guitar Radio Show, Mr. Chris Impelitary. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Thank you, my friend, and thank you for having me on your show. Absolutely. Um, so I've I've listened to this offering several times already. Uh, I feel that I've digested it, and a thought kept coming back to me as as because I remember these records when they came out. I had many of them, and the thing that kept coming back to me was, "Wow, what a difficult task this must have been for you to decide what was going to go on this anthology." Was that difficult? <laughs> yeah, it's like choosing your favorite child. Yeah, Sophie's um, Choice, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, we really try to let a lot of our fans have some input. You know, um, you know, we've had a beautiful career, especially in places like Japan, for right. many, many years. And, you know, it's interesting, and you as a musician, I'm sure you get this, you know, a lot of times you're very attached to the music that you create, sure. right? And And there's good and bad to that. The good part is, okay, it proves that I'm passionate about what I what I'm doing, which means I really love it. The problem is, though, I don't have a perspective. You know, it's like when you first, like right now, I'm in the recording studio, we're recording our new record, and, you know, I've written this music and I love it, but in five years from now, I might look back in hindsight and go, oh my God, that sucked, what was I thinking? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, when you're trying to choose your, your songs for these anthologies, it's the same issue. You know, I have a bias. Our singer Rob Rock has a bias. James Pulley, our bass player, has a bias. And we all lean towards certain songs. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, we kind of asked a lot of the, you know, the fans, you know, we, we did it kind of like, you know, hidden in social media, just like, hey, truthfully, what's your perspective? What do you like? What do you not like? And so ultimately, most of the stuff that made the record is the stuff that people evidently liked. Well, that's good. I mean, and that, I mean, that makes for a really enjoyable listen for everybody concerned. Um, certainly, I mean, there were songs on here that I recognized immediately. Um, and I was like, oh yeah. Because I remember, you know, I, I grew up uh, I grew up in New York. I live in Austin now, but I grew up in New York and uh, particularly on Long Island quite a bit. And there was this one record store that was uh, catered primarily to rock and metal. And it was called Agents of Fortune. And it was the very first time that I had ever seen an impelitary record. And it came in as an import. And so I asked the guy there who, you know, he was the one guy, the only guy that worked there. He owned the place and everything else. So he knew every single record in the, in the place. And I said, what about this? He goes, oh, you need you need to have this record. So, you know, there, there, were, these, there were these songs on here like, you know, well, the, the song that we came in on, in the show here today is a victim of the system. And, uh, you know, I love songs like this. I love songs that I call them full bugs. You know, they're like full tilt boogie rock songs. There's nothing better than being in a car driving fast and listening to a song like victim of the system. <laughs> Thank you. You know what I mean? Um, so, it's great when when you can put together a collection like this and I got to tell you folks this is such a good collection of I mean you get everything you get everything you get the great songs 
you get great vocals and outrageously cool guitar playing. That's not just, you know, to call you a shredder is, I think is insulting because you, you're so tasty with it all. Um, was that something that was always your intention coming up as a player? You know, no. The taste, and and this is kind of like a double-edged sword. So when I first came out, you know, like any young kid, right? You know, when you start playing, you start to really evolve. I mean, I started playing guitar when I was probably like, I don't know, 11 or 12 years old. And, you know, especially when you hit that stride where you start to really start to accomplish something with the instrument, mm. you know, especially in your your young you know early teenage years the first thing you want to do is play as fast as you possibly can right so you know i worked on that and i really built a lot of muscle memory and and there was good and bad to that the good part was it gave me the ability to play really complex musical passages without really blinking an eye and i don't mean that in an arrogant manner but it really helped me be able to play anything i wanted to play that was the good the bad was i lost perspective of i was just masturbating on guitar you know, a lot of people deem me as like this wanker, which, and I completely understood, you know, after a while. And so I started to listen and absorb those messages and realize, my God, they're right. I mean, it's okay to play fast, which I still do to this day, but it has to have music sensibility. It has to have a purpose. And so even if I'm, you know, playing at a hundred percent full shred during a solo, I'm always thinking about, is this have a melodic overtone? Does, is there a structure to it? Right. You know? And so I work really hard at that. You know, I'm a big fan of songwriting and the riff first, of course. So, because a lot of people think, oh, this is just a shred band. And what's interesting, Impelitary's never been that. Mm-hmm. I know I've gotten deemed by that and I played into it, but this has always been a band. You know, we grew up loving bands like early Van Halen, early Ozzy with Randy Rhodes. You know, that was a huge influence on us. Thin yeah. Lizzy, you know, all of that stuff. And so, you know, the music at least our expression of music was always been a team effort you know four guys getting around playing together it was never about hey it's all about the guitar player you know i I know (laughs) that's obviously my last name um but it really has always been a band effort and we're really about the songs first then the solo is like the frosting on the cake hopefully the frosting is really good i hope right no i totally and and you're right and that's 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 the way it has ended up turning out especially and you can hear it you know the proof is in the pudding in on this anthology is like these great songs great rock songs like i said great vocals and yeah this frosting on top which is these killer solos how much theory was involved with your early training well like any kid you know you basically learn all of your your basic uh, music theory elements right you learn all of keys you learn all the scales whether it's harmonic minor diminished you know aeolian you, you just you ultimately learn the basic the concepts and i took guitar lessons um from a guy named mark Mundell in connecticut when i was a little kid and he was an amazing guitar player um but he was also trained played jazz played rock did it all um and so you know i probably spent about four or five years taking lessons i mean ritually like every single week and i would play my guitar some sometimes like i grew up with my grandparents my grandmother coming yelling at me because i wouldn't stop you right. know um so but but the, the training part of it in music theory that was probably um probably the first four or five years um it was a pretty serious element of my you know my ritual you know mm-hmm. so and that's it and after that i just really started playing um 
more so by ear you know learning pieces not reading music but actually doing everything like you know most traditional rock players right right i i heard one time that you said that uh, your three biggest influences were obviously early ed uh randy yep um and you cited uh the uh, album by Al Demiola, John McLaughlin, and Paco De Lucia. And Paco. Yeah, yeah, Friday Night in San Francisco, um, which was a, a, a big, big record for me, too, when it came out. Um, have you heard the Saturday Night in San Francisco yet? Uh, only pieces. I want to have, I haven't had time to actually sit down. And, and really listen to the whole thing. But I've heard pieces and it sounds great. It's really good. And I, who knew? I never knew that there was a second night. I mean, it makes sense. But um, but yeah, that, that that second night got captured too. It's I think it's amazing. Um, yeah. I, I, I really think that's such an interesting composite. You know, the Eddie makes sense. Randy makes sense, of course. Um, but the but adding those other three guys in there, which yes makes sense, but it, but it's interesting that it comes from from the from the acoustic part of it, where at, on acoustic guitar there's nowhere to hide. You know? Yeah, I love that you said there's nowhere to hide, um, and and it's true. You know, I mean, the one thing I learned from those guys is right hand attack articulation and you know to be honest most of the time when i practice i don't play with an amp i always play acoustically because uh-huh. i figure if i can do it acoustically then i can do it with all the you know the tricks right. right you know with the tone and the amps and the delays and the reverbs but i really make certain i can do it on an acoustic guitar as well um but you know timiola and mclaughlin i mean even john mclaughlin my god people i mean should go on youtube and look at him in 1973 playing it's funny how so many guitar players in our generation got credit for this the speed playing the shred thing mm-hmm. and i'm always chuckling or giggling going are you guys kidding me watch watch mclaughlin in 1973 he's playing he's playing circles around us today yeah <laughs> it's so amazing you know yeah. oh, so I, I, I used to watch him a lot videos um Demiola, of course you know I, I love that stuff you know his articulation and a paco just you know it was just such a different expression he was able to keep up with those guys have tremendous speed perfect articulation and the guy's doing it without a pick yeah (laughs) and the other two and the other two are using picks which is which is you know which is really interesting because there's this excellent video on youtube of them playing god i can't remember the name of the track uh it's one of the tracks off of friday night in san francisco and they're going at it, and Paco is practically yawning as he plays his parts, and the other two are like, you can tell they're sweating trying to keep up with Paco. <laughs> it's it's fascinating. Yeah, he was he was a whole nother he was a whole nother breed of, of musician. He absolutely was. Yeah, for sure. Um, what music do do you listen to that people think you might not like? What's your oh. What's what's your go-to stuff? Gil, I'll tell you. Be honest, right now, you, most people will be shocked when they hear this. It probably turn me off after this. <laughs> so right now, my little guilty pleasure. I really love this new band called The Struts. They're not new. They've been around for a while. Yeah, man, these guys are great. I mean, you know, the singer is basically he's like to me the new Freddie Mercury. You know, uh-huh. there's no doubt about it. The guitar solo, I mean, this is not going to be guitar solo kind of you know stuff. This is more. I mean, it's definitely rock. 
Um, at times, they remind me of somewhere in between Queen, um, bands like The Strokes, which again, I'm, that's not my cup of tea by any means. But when you hear their songwriting, it's brilliant. It's really good. Yeah. So that's something people wouldn't think I listen to. Um, I also really find myself enjoying country music i mean it's probably the element of where the 80s went <laughs> you know <laughs> um but but i really like listening to a lot of the the country artists you know they've got edge it reminds me a bit of 80s pop rock at times yeah um, and oh, there's yeah. brilliant players in there yeah for sure well you remember ron keel right sure yeah yeah he he went country Oh, that's cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. Or maybe I did. Maybe someone did tell me that. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's true. Yeah, I mean, I mean you, 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 go look ahead. at guys like Dan Huff, you know, an yeah. amazing player for the band Giant. Yeah. You know, I think at one point he produced um, Faith Hill's record. Right. Obviously turned into a producer, but just this amazing player. Then you got guys like, is it Johnny Highland? I always get his last name wrong. But yeah. my God, I mean, I could sit and watch that guy for hours. <laughs> He yeah, makes me have true. to grab my guitar and play 20 hours a day. That's right. Yeah, he was actually one of the first uh, artists signed to when Steve Vai had uh, Favored Nations record label. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah, so that first record, first Johnny Holland record was on that label. Yeah, that's he's he's on a whole nother level as well. I mean, well, it's yeah. it's, it's so interesting yeah. how, you know, th- that's interesting. It's like the, the, the music that you, you've been making all these years and the music that, that uh, Ed was making, you know, it, that form of guitar playing had this really incredible effect on pop culture, you know, for that type of guitar playing to end up in R&B songs and and disco songs. I mean, you know, I mean, think about if, if, if you go back and listen to like... Um, uh, the Michael Sambello song uh, 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 Maniac. Maniac yeah yeah there's tapping on there you know uh, of course <laughs> of course of course beat it right with a Michael Jackson song beat it and then you know and then what Prince ended up following in the in that footstep and then and uh, so you know it's it's it you know you go to a Brad Paisley concert now and and he does a section of the, of his uh of his show where he does a little tribute to Ed and he does um, Eruption. Yeah, yeah. So... Yeah, he, I mean, look, I mean, he made such an impact on all of us, but, you know, it's interesting, our whole generation coming from, you know, the Ed and the Randy thing into our world of the, you know, I I don't know how to explain it. It was kind of like in the, I guess, 85 through 88 or somewhere around there. Right. You know, it seemed to be embraced by a lot of different genres of music and artists, which was surprised me. Yeah. Well, because it was such a different, it was such a different approach and it was such a different sound. And, you know, the music business is always looking for new sounds and, and there became this melding, you know, not unlike what happened when, when hip hop started to really take over and, and you started to see, you know, uh, anthrax and public enemy and, you know, stuff like that, (laughs) you know, so, so there, I love when, when different genres start to meld together because you never know what you're going to end up with. It's a gumbo. Absolutely. You know, so that's kind of cool for that when that happens. Um, but, um, but that's really interesting that you listen to, uh, you said the yeah, but, but also, I mean, now I, I have to be careful because then it will be like, oh, here comes the Ingvay comparison. I mean, I love classical music. So most of the time, if in my car, that's all. I, I live in Los Angeles. So we have, there's a university called USC, mm-hmm. and USC have a classical station. It's KUSC, and man, it's just brilliant. All day, it's like Vivaldi, 
you know, Bach, Brahms, Grieg, and it's just made a huge impact on, you know, so I listen to that stuff. That's probably the, the stuff I listen to the most. If people were to say, what music do you listen to? It'd be classical music, but of course I don't want to, you know, be thrown into the, uh-oh, here we go again, comparison stuff. Yeah, but I really now, do love it. See, that's something, yeah, I, and it's so funny because when I, I have heard people say comparing you, trying to compare you to Malmsteen, and I don't hear that at all. You know, <laughs> I, I sound like, I feel like I'm much more, like, you know, again, I'm from Connecticut, lived in California for, you know, 30 plus years. So I just feel like this American rock guitar player. I've never felt like one of those European guys. And I love Ingvay very much. I respect him. And I get it. In the beginning, there was definitely comparison because, again, Graham Bonnet joined my band. And Graham was, you know, an Alcatraz with Ingvay. You know, I was playing a Strat. We were all at that point so influenced by people like Richie Blackmore. They were all dressing alike. Right. <laughs> and of course, that was immediately put on, oh, you're cloning Ingve. And, you know, so at a certain point, oh, well, yeah, better get off that trip, you know. Yeah, but. Uh, sorry, Richie, by the way. You know, and there's no way that. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I mean, I'm not, I'm not taking anything away from, from Ingve. He's, he's an excellent player, and, I, and I've liked one or two records I've really liked, but. There's no way he's going to do a track like Texas Nuclear. It's just <laughs> not. Satriani, Eddie Boogie. Yeah, exactly. It's just not going to happen. You know, and for that matter, he's not going to do something like uh, 17th Century Chicken Picking either. Yeah, a heavily influenced song by Steve Morris. But yeah, you know, uh, you know, for me, I just, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I had to deal with that in the 80s. There's a lot of comparison. You know, it wasn't the funnest time to go through, but, you know, in those those times of whether it's comparison or, you know, feeling like you're getting put down or always having to prove yourself, in some ways that's also great as an artist because, you know, I, I'm very competitive, you know. Whether I do something great or bad, I don't know, but I certainly, when I get competitive, I'm driven. I'm driven to, you know, push myself, right? right? right. Basically try to conquer my human limitations because we're human, right? We're Absolutely. playing an instrument that we're trying to control. Absolutely. You know, metal strings, wood. <laughs> so... Yeah. All of this stuff makes everything a bit challenging, but you know. Anyways, no, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, when you were when you when we were talking earlier about you picking the songs and and having having fans get involved and all that stuff, um, when you started to, to create the sequencing and everything for the record, were you did you think back on the on the uh, on those particular sessions yeah I mean I remember most of the, the sessions very well you know um, and, and each one has their own story very yeah. unique it's funny you're talking about victim of the system yeah. and it was a really interesting time because you know we had come off of uh, well Rob Rock who's, who was the original singer right we had a, this black record we call it the black EP um, that really gave us our it created a presence for us globally, at least in the metal world, and of course, I guess, the guitar shredding kind of community. And and then I did the Stand in Line record, which was with Graham. Um, but then after that, we decided to completely go a different direction. At this time, bands like Guns N' Roses were just exploding. So we did a record in Japan called Grin and Barrett. And I remember we did the record. A lot of people really love the record because it's very groove-oriented. It's almost somewhere between Guns and maybe in a band like Extreme, I guess. You know, but our fans, at least our hardcore fans, hated it. So we got basically a call from the record company. We're going to give you another chance. Go back in and do what you do best. And so we basically went in to track the, the EP, Victim of the System. And at this time, you know, we put a, a really cool team together. People don't know this, but 
when we tracked that record, the band Metallica had just, they were literally just finishing the Black record, and they were at a place called 101 Studios. So as they're leaving, they're finishing the production, we come in. And basically, our engineer and the guy who mixed the record, tracked everything, he actually did the entire Black record with, with Bob Rock, mm. you know, Metallica. So the drums, the snare, all that, that's all Metallica stuff. People don't even know that. Oh, wow. So you listen to the snare, but you go, oh my gosh, that's, that's Lars's snare. You know, I mean, it's literally the samples, everything's identical. And I, I really love the sound of that record. It was really an exciting time. You know, plus we were trying to, again, prove ourselves. Right. Right. So I remember that session and just really good times. Yeah. And when that thing hit Japan, it blew up. It did really well, and, and you know, it set us up for an amazing career there. Yeah. So yeah, it's interesting. You have such a unique, a unique dynamic with the Japanese audience in the sense that you go there and it's like madness, and then when you come home, you get the you get the the luxury. Of being able to be like, okay, I can chill, I can go about my business, be a, be a normal, everyday guy, and but you go there and it's 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 insanity. What's that? What's that like for you? Well, I mean, like I guess any artist, you know, when you 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 strive to achieve some sort of success, it's obviously rewarding. I mean, we're humbled by it; we don't take it for granted. Um, I, I honestly don't even know why we had that kind of success there, why we still do to this day. You know, I always used to say, I think it was success by association. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is, so when Rob and I did the, the Black Impelitary EP with songs like Lost in the Rain, Burning, that stuff, I remember Krang Magazine, which is, I think it was like the biggest metal or rock magazine at that time, pretty much in the world. And um, they gave us like a five-star review. They said I was going to be like, you know, the next Eddie or whatever. And, and so that gave us a bit of a, I, I guess people became interested in us, right? And especially Japan, we started to gain a cult following. But then when Graham Bonnet joined the band for Stand In Line to do that record, Graham at that time of his life was still huge in Japan because he had played with Richie Blackmore, right, from Deep Purple and Rainbow. Um, he had played with Michael Schenker Group and then Alcatraz. He had uh, Ingve and Steve Vai. And then he joined my band, and I have a feeling whether the record was going to be good, bad, whether we played great or not, I just kind of think that they gave me a little credit, un unearned credit, right? Just because it was like success by association. If Bram played with Richie Blackmore and Michael Shanker and Hingvay and Vi and Alvin Pelletieri, they threw me in that club, whether I deserved it or not. And I have a feeling that probably gave us a really nice launching pad off of the cult following we had already built. So that's that's kind of how I've always humbly looked at it. Yeah, but you, you know, had the, but you had the goods to back it up. Listen, I appreciate that. You know, um, you know, I, I mean, we work. Like I say, I mean, it's just it's a team effort. We work really hard. We try to play great. We try to make great records and great music. You know, those we don't try to do like B songs and you know throwaway stuff. So you know, I think the fans in Japan always appreciate it. And then you know, you always have the right place at the right time. Yeah. You know, I mean, because, we, you know, Graham and I, the first show people, people don't know, so the first show we did in Japan was actually a major festival. And it was with Sony. Sony was our label, our record label. And uh, Karen Beer was the big thing. And we played a 65,000 yeah, 65, seat stadium called the Tokyo Dome. And I remember we played, it was us, Billy Joel, 
Boss Skaggs, all these like older people, like Art Garfunkel, those type people. Mm-hmm. And we were the metal band, and everybody wanted to be around us. And we, it was just insane. You know, I mean, they threw us in, and it was there was so much media. It was a circus. You know, going to Japan. I mean, I remember going there. We were hanging out with Billy Joel a lot. He was with us. Um, and I think you know the media just kind of started to pay attention to us, and it had a lot to do with that festival thing we were we were participating in. Um, and something happened where I don't know maybe we we crossed over from you know just heavy metal you know the media that cover our specific type of music, whether it's the musician guitar magazines all that stuff and the heavy metal magazines and radio and TV. All of a sudden, it was part of pop culture in Japan. This got like you know. I guess what you'd see on your nightly news, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that was like another springboard. And, you know, all of a sudden, you know, we found ourselves selling, I don't know how many millions of records we probably sold over there, but you know, it did something and it sprung us. And all of a sudden I was on the cover of all the guitar magazines. And I think I won best rock guitars than burn magazine, which is their big, big metal magazine there. So a lot of things really took off for us. Well, what was the magazine? What was the magazine that you beat Dimebag out on for cover? Okay, so their biggest guitar magazine, which in America, I mean, I don't know who's the biggest in the United States. Originally, when I was a little, little kid, it was Guitar Player, then it was Guitar World, then it was Back to Guitar Player. Whatever their equivalent is in Japan, it's called Young Guitar Magazine. Yeah, and I remember our record company called us, and yeah, they were like, you know, it's really important, I guess, for us to land on the covers, or at least a few of the covers, you know, for promotion of the record. And I remember they said, I think for that particular issue, we were up against time. I was like, we're not going to beat them I mean I love Pantera and I love Dime you know they're just too big and they're they're killing it in America and Europe they're just a global presence right now and somehow yeah they put us on the cover but the next issue I believe Dime was on anyways <laughs> well you beat them to the punch though yeah it's funny <laughs> your fans are are rabid they are I mean they're really they're wildly loyal I was looking at social media stuff and quotes that people write about you and one stuck out, and I want to read it to you. Somebody wrote, one of the greatest guitarists in all of eternity. What do you think of that? Uh, first of all, I'm extremely humbled. I mean, how do you, what do you say to something like that? <laughs> you know, I mean, listen, and, that, and listen, again, there are uh, many, many amazing guitar players. I could name hundreds of them. Right, I'm not better than anybody. I'm just me. So you know, when you hear my playing or music, the one thing I think our fans—I hate that word fans—are our, our friends, people that really have embraced this band. I think they realize what we do. We're not competing with anybody because we're expressing ourselves musically. Mm-hmm. Right? This is a team. This is you know four guys or five guys creating music that people can somehow relate to. You know, and so, you know, when I'm playing, if people think, you know, if someone has that feeling or that impression I've made on them, I mean, obviously I'm humbled, I'm extremely flattered, but they're not saying I'm better than John McLaughlin or Al DeMille or someone like that. I think what they're doing is it somehow touched them. Maybe it made more of an impact on right. them, you right. know? Right. That's the word. That's because I was going to say that when you were done. I was going to say you've reached them in such a way, you've touched them in such a way that, and, and it resonates in such a way that yes, for that person or those people or this group of, of individuals, 
yeah, greatest guitarist in all of eternity. That's, I mean, that's amazing. And, you know, look, it's beautiful. Uh, I mean, look, it's it's listen. I mean, of course, and and we're always flattered by stuff like that. But you also have to keep your head on your shoulders, right? And of course. I mean, I'm always striving to be a better player, so I'm always pushing myself and challenging myself. And you know, when you talk about the fans, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of loyalty. I mean, look. Most people, especially in the, because again, I, I live out here in Los Angeles, so you know we still have the heart of the music industry, what's left of it, and you know a lot of the music industry, they know who I am, but if you really were to ask the average person on the street to be like who, <laughs> right, they don't have a clue. But yet it's odd because we'll go play like I'll give you an example about oh gosh probably about two or three years before the pandemic. So one of the tours we were doing, we had to go over and it was the first time we were going to play Korea. We had never played there. And I remember my bass player, James, for some reason, an issue came out, all those passport issues. He couldn't go. So my friend, and you guys all know Rudy Sarzo, the bass player. Mm-hmm. Um, so Rudy basically came in, rehearsed with us for a week, learned the entire set. And we flew over and we were going to do a headlining show in Busan, Korea. And, you know, you walk out and you've never been there. and You think of band our level, how many people are going to come, Right. And I remember, you know, we did sound check in the field, whatever, went back to the hotel, and, you know, kind of biting nails thinking, oh, God, what's this? We have a massive production there, you know, and we got back out there. And I remember Rudy looking at me going, oh, my God. I mean, we walked up on stage and there were like 30,000 people, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you're talking audiences that Metallica draw, you mm-hmm. know. So and I find that fascinating because most people don't have a clue of who we are. But yet events like that happen to us often. Yeah, well, that that you know, so there's there's more than meets the eye, then, obviously. Regarding, yeah, I, I don't know, but you know, and then I get other people. I get a lot of you know people who call me and say, "Oh man, you guys always get ignored by media or whatever," and it's like, look, it's cool, you know. People have their taste. I don't want to force us on the media or people. I mean, if they like us, awesome. They're part of the family. Come on in, right? You know, this is fun. Right. So absolutely, but but. You know, we know we have a lot of people that are really loyal to the band, and somehow, like I say, what we do is connected with them, right? Mm-hmm. So, I guess that's kind of how we've been able to succeed for so many years. Totally. So, you were saying earlier that you remember that by listening to, or just looking at some of these titles and listening to the tracks, but as you were picking them for the for the anthology, that you remembered some of the um, sessions. Do you remember the session for Perfect Crime? Yes, I do. Yeah, I remember. Um, I remember recording the guitar tracks. I remember the equipment. That's <laughs> what you started about. See, this is where I'm more of a geek. You know, I'll start thinking. I remember that. I actually was out in Corona at the Fender Custom Shop, and they had this set neck Strat I played, and these tallies. I was like, oh my god, these are amazing. And there's one in the corner because they were all sold out. They wouldn't even let me buy it, right? Even though I was getting stuff for free. And so there was one in the corner. It was a set setting that track it was like silver sparkle right ebony fingerboard floyd rose which i generally don't use but the thing played so amazing so they gave the guitar to me and i remember going back and, and we went into the studio and went, god this thing is just amazing sounding and so i plugged in and at that time i was using a pitbull v8 i think what was it vht pitbull ultra and this thing I, I don't know it just it screamed with that strat and I remember writing the riff and playing around with it with Graham. Um, and so we tracked it. We were using a producer named Mudrock, Andrew, Andrew Murdoch, quite a bit nicknamed Mudrock. He had done bands like Avenged Sevenfold, actually after us, um, Godsmack. And so, 
you know, we tracked the song and it was also one of those things where I had worked, when I worked with Graham Bonnet, and this is, I hope I don't sound like I'm being negative towards our Stand In Line record, but Stand In Line to me was never really an impellitary record. I don't think it should have been called impellitary. It was much more of a tribute to bands like Rainbow and Graham's past. So I always promised myself if I ever do something with Graham again, I'm gonna push myself, make sure the guitars are dry, full, fat, it's more metal, more like what the band encompasses. And so when I wrote that song with Graham, it was really almost like vengeance <laughs> on the stand in line record. I was like, I don't want to do something like that again. I want to do more of an impellitary type record. So uh, that was it. And, and, you know, we tracked in different places for that. You know, I think we did one-on-one studios for tracking the drums and bass. Guitars are probably done at the studio I own or part owner in, which was a place called Sound Chamber, which was in Burbank. And then um, I think we mixed that at uh, one-on-one or one of those other studios with uh, Mud Rock. So that's just what I remember about it. Yeah, it's a, I love that track. I really love that track. I think it's yeah. I, I love Graham's vocal on it. I yeah. mean, Graham and I worked on that, but I mean, it was just. I mean, people don't realize his voice. I mean, I've been around you know guys where you know you're around a guy like they could just sing kind of like a Pavarotti. You know, they've got power, amazing control, vibrato. You know, they're high tenors. And Graham's got that voice, but what people don't realize is when Graham opens his mouth, we could, you know, we could have a backline of, you know, marshals or boogies or whatever on ten. Graham's not even singing in the mic, and you'll hear him. It's like <laughs> I've gone to the zoo when my kids were little and heard lions roars that were quieter than Graham's vocal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's he is amazing. He is amazing, absolutely. Um, so. From what I understand, your very first concert, I think, was my very first concert. It was uh, Kiss in 76 for the Rock and Roll Over Tour. <laughs> was that your first? Yeah. <laughs> yes, that was mine. <laughs> Providence Providence Civic Center, my grandmother bought tickets to it. Um, she paid for me and like a couple of my friends and convinced one of her friends, husband or whatever, to take us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I remember that song vividly. I basically ran across the side where the behind the stage, and I'll never forget those guys coming out. What an impact it had on us! We're like, I think it was eleven or twelve. Yeah, it, it it changed my life. That the next day, I went out and got a bass and started to play. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was a game changer for sure. Absolutely. I mean, and you know, I I had already been into them since since the Alive record, but uh, but wasn't able to get to see them until you know, and the tickets were like seven dollars and fifty cents. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about inflation, right? <laughs> Just a little yeah, bit. I, mean, I, I, I probably saw probably ten Kiss concerts. You know, that's what I can call Jeep later in life, but. You know, during that time in my youth, yeah, I, mean, I love that band. It was really more of the theatrical part of that band. And I gotta be honest, I actually thought Ace would be in, especially in the early years. He was actually a really good player. Really you good. Know, that's yeah. my, my personal opinion. And, you know, it's interesting. And then obviously, as soon as Van Halen came out, well, that was the end of Kiss. <laughs> I, still, <laughs> I still love the end of Kiss, but no, Eddie had me hooked. And, you know, and then during the time I was into Kiss, but I was really more into, as far as like soloing stuff. 
I was really learning a lot of stuff by guys like Gary Moore, Brian May. Mm-hmm. Um, love the Thin Lizzy guys. Mm-hmm. You know, so Kiss was really more about, oh, this is the show. This is really cool. You got to have a really good production when you're playing live. Mm-hmm. Um, but the musicians were always, who do I'm, who am I turning back on or leaning on? Richie Blackmore is another. Yeah, for sure. Um, so walk us through your your rig right now. What are you from from guitar to amp? Co- complicated, yeah. I have so much stuff. Um, so you know, I have my fallback equipment that I, you know, it's kind of like your trusted friend, your your extension of your body. You yeah, know, sure. most people have always seen me. There's, I have. It's the last year of the four bolt Fender Stratocasters. It's a vintage 1971 Strat that I actually got from Norm's Rare Guitars. Mm-hmm. Um, that guitar is pretty much been with me everywhere we've gone in the world you know um that guitar is always with me so i play that um my main amp and i've got many um is a vintage 1973 watt marshall that was actually modded it was done by as i forget what the title is it's bob bradshaw and john sir had custom audio electronics this is many years ago and so John, I think, created the mod, but there's a guy named Martin who worked for Bob Bratch, actually did it, did the labor part of it. And we worked on that amp forever. And virtually every one of my friends, well, guitar players included, who played through that amp, always try to buy it or steal it from me. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's just, it's one of those amps where I can play with single coil pickups, original, like vintage single coils, and use nothing at the front end of the amp. You know, I mean, it just, it screams, it, you know, it has, it has very much like that kind of eruption, you know, I'm the one kind of guitar tone, right. um, naturally. So that's like my mania. Then, you know, now obviously I, what people don't know is I have old Les Pauls. I have a 58 Les Paul that I do a lot of recording with, including solos, like the record Venom. I know in the music video, we're using a Charvel, but actually that whole record, almost everything on the solos were all 58 Les Paul. Oh, wow. And and, and I use different amps over the years. I mean, for the most part, it's always been Marshalls. Like the very first Black EP, those actually surprisingly, that was, I think, the the first or second year JCM 800 with a tube screamer. And the trick to that guitar solo tone was an AMS delay, which are really expensive and really hard to find, you know? So that was kind of like the trick to the tone. And then over the years, it was always, you know, it was probably going to be somewhere in the very early 70s, late 60s Marshalls. And uh, now, you know, I've kind of migrated, still using the Marshalls. But right now I've been buying these uh, Mesa Boogie Mark III mm-hmm. blue stripe heads, which I really like. As a matter of fact, one of my buddies, he's a producer, his name is Joe Barisi. He did like, well, actually, he just finished Slipknot. He's doing Avenged Sevenfold right now. And I think he also did the last tool record. And Joe called me and he goes, you gotta bring those down. And he ended up buying a bunch of them too. We were doing like a shootout. And we found out that one of my heads, one of my blue stripes, we think it's been modded, but it just, it just, it sounds so amazing. You know, it's kind of has that John Sykes, you know, the, the White Snake third album. Right with a lot of clarity I mean as a matter of fact I believe he was using a Coliseum but it was a, a Mark III blue stripe I think it was the same thing yeah the the, the, the low end chug on those are amazing yeah yeah and you gotta be careful the way you scoop you know the EQ because scooping is great for rhythms but not so much for solos right right so it, it's kind of the way you control that but so I've been using those um uh, on the Impelitary Records too because we really I mean I was always I love the band Queen 
and especially the other artist which I would probably bring to attention would be uh, Tom Schultz from Boston mm-hmm. I really learned layering from those guys so a lot of times we'll play a lot of stuff live right or, or get a live feel to it but then you realize man as we add you know samples to the kick drum all of a sudden the depth of the album is getting bigger and bigger and bigger which is great but the problem is now your guitars your old vintage Marshall rig is starting to sound smaller and smaller and smaller right, right. so a lot of times on the, on the solo stuff what we would do is we would do a lot of stuff with the vintage stuff like the vintage Marshalls or whatever then when we wanted the depth we'd like maybe triple track or add a quad which is four tracks of the mm-hmm. same part mm-hmm. and those we would do with either like a boogie or a, um, a VHT Actually, usually I think it was actually a boogie rectifier, which I hate. But when you go on the chug stuff, there's really no amp that can touch them. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So this record's coming out on the 30th. And I should say this compilation, three discs, are coming out on the 30th. And you're currently working on a new record now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we have, because we're under contract, you know, with JVC Victor in Japan. We're mm-hmm. also on Frontiers for Europe and America. Mm-hmm. And so we owe everybody records. And it's been about, I don't know, three years now? Almost four years right. since the previous release. So they're all banging on my door going, when are we going to get the next record? Right. <laughs> so, so we're working. So once that's completed, will, will there be some touring dates? Of course, yeah. I mean, you know, the hard part is I know in America, people, especially the people that like our band, they're frustrated with us. And I get it. You know, I mean, we're, we're always spending all of our time in Japan or certain parts of Europe, you know, where we've just, we've been able to succeed. But, you know, we know we have to tour the States. We're just trying to make it work financially, right. you know, because for us, it's, I think we're spoiled. In the markets we play, you know, we're playing arenas. Sometimes we're even playing stadiums, sure. right? And, and so when you're doing stuff like that, it's very difficult to realize, oh, my God, we got to go play a 500-seat club, and how are we going to do to make this work? Right. Well, you yeah, know? I mean, I've been hearing about, I mean, back when the gas prices were completely ludicrous all around the country, they're still bad in California. But when they were really ludicrous everywhere, a lot of tours were getting canceled just because of the gas. Yeah, it's, you know, people don't realize it's really expensive to tour. It you is, know? Yeah. And, we're again that's one of those areas where i know where it's maybe it's luck we're at the right place at the right time for places like japan or places in various parts of asia and europe you know we go play i mean if you see us youtube stuff for the most part with the exception of maybe like you know rehearsal kind of warm-up shows we'll do um most of the time you know when you're playing these massive venues we have a, a huge crew that we have and they're not cheap right you know you think if you're taking 10 or 15 people out with you then the back line, all the yeah. gear that comes with us, the yeah. cargo, yeah. it gets really expensive. Yeah, and then, you know? and then there's, I mean, I, I well, then there's, hot, then there's hotels, there's gas, there's meals, there's, you know, whatever else is going to come along. I mean, it's a lot. Yeah, there was a promoter that offered us a full U.S. tour about four and a half years ago, and I was like, okay, let's look at it. And, you know, by the time I got done with it, mathematically, we would have lost, I mean, out of my pocket, I probably would have spent fifty or $60,000 a month. Just, wow. just touring. Wow. So it really means it becomes a vanity project. It's like, hey, come see me play, and I'm going to pay you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you right. Know? Right. Right. So, so, but, but, look, there are many bands that are able to do it. There's no reason we shouldn't do it, and we will do it. I mean, we have. I mean, there's just no choice. We have to. Otherwise, we're going to just end. Right. Right. Well, if you come to Austin, Texas, or San Antonio, I'll come and see you. <laughs> Great rock places. Totally. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, 
Uh, man, this has been great. I am so glad I got to talk to you. I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time. And um, I, I wish you nothing but success with this record and the next one. Well, listen, thank you for having me on your show. I'm honored as always. I always love to speak to other musicians. You know, pretty cool stuff. Absolutely. Folks, the record is called Wake the Beast, the Impelitaria Anthology. It's out there as of September 30th, 2022. Go get it. And folks, also, like I always say, don't just stream it. Go buy it. All right? Because if you buy it, they'll make more. That's just how it works. Thanks so much, Chris. You have a great rest of the day. Uh, and before I leave, let you go, if you were to pick one track, I know this is hard, but if you were to pick one one track for we we came in on victim of the system, you could pick a track from the from the anthology for us to go out on. What would it be? I, I actually really dig uh, perfect crime with Graham. Okay, perfect crime it is. That's the, I'm so glad you chose that. <laughs> That's wonderful. Thanks so much, Chris. Hold on one second, but we're going to sign off right here.
Check out Guitar Radio Show on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher Radio, GuitarRadioShow.com, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Find Guitar Radio Show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And remember, if you like the artists you hear on Guitar Radio Show, don't just stream their music, buy it. Built by hand in Southern California. Overdrive, fuzz, wah, boosts, chorus, compressor, and vibe pedals with a purpose. Purchase online at bmffx.com or bmffx official shop on Reverb. your tone and playing experience today with bmffx bmffx.com great tone made simple guitar players are always searching for the tone that will define their playing identity geppetto pickups wide spectrum of tones and sonic colors inspire and instill a newfound confidence in the player that comes from having amazing tone Single coils, humbuckers, and bass pickups wound and constructed by hand to a level of perfection that will finally satisfy that search for tone and enhance your playing. Go to GeppettoGuitars.com. We'll give your guitar its voice, but you'll make it sing. Unchained Brands. UnchainedBrands.com. Rock and roll accessories that give back. Handcrafted pendants, chains, necklaces, earrings, and wearables that symbolize the union of the music community. Unchained Brands is proud to provide a portion of their proceeds to Benefit Music Cares, a nonprofit organization that provides a safety net of critical assistance, education, pathways to recovery, and support for all music people in times of need. Together, we will lead the journey to inspire through our products and our community. Come join us. Find Unchained Brands on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and at unchainedbrands.com. 